Dame Cool Books, episode 14. What question would you ask? Welcome back. This is Wesley Schantz. This week we talk about chapter 10, The Consul and the Bear, and Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass. Lyra and Pan are on their way north, not yet to Bolvanger, which gives its name to part two, but then for a long time they have not been in Oxford. They weren't there for much of part one. It's conceptually, rather than as concrete locations, that the contrast between these places will clearly be important for the structure of the story. Bearing that in mind, we've moved into a new phase, a very different setting compared to where the story opened. Still, the same relationship will remain the focus, that between Lyra and Pan. The sun was shining brightly, and the green waves were dashing against the bows, bearing white streams of foam as they curved away. Out on the deck, with the breeze blowing and the whole sea a-sparkle with light and movement, she felt little sickness at all, and now that Pantaliamon had discovered the delights of being a seagull, and then a stormy petrel, and skimming the wave-tops, Lyra was too absorbed by his glee to wallow in landlubberly misery. Lyra's seasickness, which had lent some comic relief to the end of part one, opens part two as a difficulty to be overcome by learning to see the same elements that cause it as a playground rather than as an obstacle. The relationship between humans and demons and the unease that can accompany it are taken up in Fardacorum's story of his contact with a witch. Now, Fardacorum knows these Lapland witches, John Foss said, and if I ain't mistaken, there's an obligation there. That's right, John, said Fardacorum. It were forty years back, but that's nothing to a witch. Some of them lived to many times that. I saved a witch's life. She fell out of the air, being pursued by a great red bird like to nothing I'd seen before. She fell injured in the marsh, and I set out to find her. She was like to drowning, and I got her on board and shot that bird down, and it fell into a bog to my regret, for it was as big as a bittern and flame red. Ah, the other men murmured, captured by Father Coram's story. Now, when I got her in the boat, I had the most grim shock I'd ever known, because that young woman had no demon. It was as if he'd said she had no head. The very thought was repugnant. The men shuddered, their demons bristled or shook themselves or cawed harshly, and the men soothed them. Pantalaimon crept into Lyra's arms, their hearts beating together. The relationship between humans and demons, and the unease that can accompany it, are taken up in Fardacorum's story of his contact with a witch. Now, Fardacorum knows these Lapland witches, John Foss said, and if I ain't mistaken, there's an obligation there. That's right, John, said Fardacorum. It were forty years back, but that's nothing to a witch. Some of them lived to many times that. I saved a witch's life. She fell out of the air, being pursued by a great red bird like to nothing I'd seen before. She fell injured in the marsh, and I set out to find her. She was like to drowning, and I got her on board and shot that bird down. And it fell into a bog to my regret, for it was as big as a bittern, and flame red. Ah, the other men murmured, captured by Fardacorum's story. Now when I got her in the boat, I had the most grim shock I'd ever known, because that young woman had no demon.
It was as if he'd said she had no head. The very thought was repugnant. The men shuddered, and their demons bristled or shook themselves or cawed harshly, and the men soothed them. Pantalaimon crept into Lyra's arms, their hearts beating together. As we begin part two, we have the power of stories reinforced. Fartacorums captures the listeners, who are on their way to rescue their captive children. Besides the detail of the wonderful bird, what stands out is the young woman having no demon. We're reminded again of the macabre glimpse of Grumman's head, but the explanation comes out. Witches' demons can separate, permitting a kind of independence, but also a vulnerability. One's demon might be mistaken for a normal, or at least a non-demon animal. This premise of a lone demon will be one Pullman returns to for Lyra's Oxford. And the question of Lyra's witchiness, too, that's been suggested by Macosta, will be qualified by the witch's counsel. Fartacorum's connection with the witch, saving her life, even by transgressing the great taboo unknowingly, that taboo against touching another person's demon, has conferred upon him a great reward. She already helped once when he was struck by a poison tartar error, and they had other connections. These are spelled out later by Serafina Pecola herself, but the implication of romantic love is not explicit here. It's not noted by Lyra nor, we might imagine, by many younger readers. But the motif of a fairy lover is strongly hinted at, given the witch's otherworldly powers and long life. One other important conversation takes place aboard the ship here. A new companion for Lyra comes into the story by way of her flicking apple pips at him, the able seaman. Jerry, like Pan, and still more, shows her a way of avoiding seasickness and boredom by having something to do and by the way in which one does it. Under his guidance, she found out that having something to do prevented you from feeling seasick and that even a job like scrubbing a deck could be satisfying if it was done in a seaman-like way. She was very taken with this notion and later on she folded the blankets on her bunk in a seaman-like way and put her possessions in the chest in the closet in a seaman-like way, and used stow instead of tidy for the process of doing so. Slightly later, a direct contrast is made to Mrs. Lonsdale at Jordan, where sewing was not connected to the excitement of an adventure. Here, Lyra shows enough foresight and diligence to sew a waterproof bag for the lithiometer, taking her responsibility for the instrument seriously. And like on the narrow boat before, Lyra decides in short order that this is the life for her, signaling and mixing plum duff and not climbing the crow's nest. More than anything, though, it remains Pan's job to distract her, not through work, but through delight. She still felt seasick occasionally, especially when the wind got up and the ship plunged heavily over the crests of the gray-green waves, and then it was Pantalaimon's job to distract her from it by skimming the waves as a stormy petrel, because she could feel his boundless glee in the dash of wind and water and forget her nausea. From time to time, he even tried being a fish, 
and once joined a school of dolphins to their surprise and pleasure. Lyra stood shivering in the forecastle and laughed with delight as her beloved pantalimon, sleek and powerful, leaped from the water with half a dozen other swift gray shapes. And then a little more about demons comes out. It provides a counterpart to what we could take from Fartacorum's story. Pan, in his aquatic form, points up the anxiety about needing to stay close, a requirement for those who aren't witches, in the balance between exalting in and restraining his exhilaration. We hear Lyra, for the first time, wondering about the connection she shares with him. He had to stay close to the ship, of course, for he could never go far from her, but she sensed his desire to speed as far and as fast as he could for pure exhilaration. She shared his pleasure, but for her it wasn't simple pleasure, for there was pain and fear in it too. Suppose he loved being a dolphin more than he loved being with her on land. What would she do then? As with Fartacorum's answer to the questions about the witch's demons and obligations, it is Jerry's story of the sailor with the dolphin demon that helps Lyra think through her questions. Creative insights in this imaginary world are delivered within it as common sense. And rather than appealing to Solon's dictum, call no man happy till he dies, Jerry remarks ruefully that the old sailor was never happy until he died and could be buried at sea. To Lyra's concerns about Pan assuming a fixed form, he assures her this is part of growing up, and she'll understand it experientially soon enough. Though she remains unconvinced, it didn't seem to Lyra she would ever grow up, the narrator remarks. He insists, Jerry, that is, that there are compensations to losing the ability to change, namely, knowing what kind of a person you are. And it might not be the kind of person you imagine being. He gives the example of the lion and the poodle. Discontentment does not seem to be insurmountable, he argues, whereas the underlying existence of human nature, of character differences between people, of social stations to fit into, do seem essential in Lyra's world. It might remind us of something we saw back at the start, the distance between the servants with their dog demons and the noble Lord Azriel with his snow leopard. Even among the servants, there was a hierarchy. Of all the strange and marvelous information about demons in this chapter and their connection to growing up, gaining knowledge, the fact remains that for some academic readers, one of the most unsettling things about Pullman's work is this essential distinction. The sea voyage draws to an end, and the land comes into view accompanied by smells, not of glamour this time, but of the north. That interlude of comic relief that began the voyage is echoed in the seals' clown faces. But the harshness of this northern landscape is the dominant sensation. The wind that lifted spray off the white-capped waves was monstrously cold and searched out every gap in Lyra's wolfskin, and her hands were soon aching and her face numb. Pantalimon in his ermine shape warmed her neck for her, but it was too cold to stay outside for long without work to do, even to watch the seals. 
and Lyra went below to eat her breakfast porridge and look through the porthole in the saloon. Lyra's scanty possessions elicit a laugh from Pullman, reading aloud his narrator of the audiobook. He'll take some time soon to outfit her in this chapter with proper cold weather gear, explaining each item, what it's made of, and why it works. His craftsmanlike delight in these details helps the reader experience vicariously what Lyra feels here. With all that on, and a silk muffler around her neck, and a woolen cap over her ears, and the big hood pulled forward, she was uncomfortably warm. But they were going to much colder regions than this. And later on, the difference between her animal-based gear and the synthetic garments the kids are provided with at Bolvanger will be emphasized. It seems that these are two very different approaches to nature implied there. The remainder of this chapter concerns Lyra and Fartacorum's meetings with the two new characters making up the title, the Consul and the Bear. Consul was a new word for me when I read it, uh, not council, like I thought it meant at first. And he comes first. He provides the tip that leads them to the bear, although the bear will ultimately be much more important to their story. But if we're curious about witches, about the alethiometer, and about Lyra's destiny, Martin Lancelius is worth a visit. He was a fat man with a florid face and a sober black suit. His demon was a little serpent, the same intense and brilliant green as his eyes, which were the only witch-like thing about him, though Lyra was not sure what she had been expecting a witch to look like. His name, Lancelius, may hearken back to Latinized names of scholars such as Copernicus. The lance root reminds one interpreter, Leonard F. Wheat, of Lancelot, which apparently means servant. That's on page 140 in his book, A Multiple Allegory. And then again, Bowman says he took the name Serafina Pecola from a Finnish phone book, so it may be more a case of phonoesthetic rather than semantic fitness. We get that name of the witch for the first time here, as Fartacorum skillfully lays out his request. Now Dr. Lancelius nodded as if he understood. Lyra watched this game with puzzlement and respect. There were all kinds of things going on beneath it, and she saw that the witch consul was coming to a decision. The subtlety implied by the serpent demon, the elegance of Fartacorum's cat, carry the storytelling forward in their conversation here. In a move reminiscent of Orwell, Norway government maintains official ignorance of the importation of children and the anodyne term Maistat process obscures what they really do to the kids as the name Northern Progress Exploration Company conceals the oblation board behind it. What intercision might mean, we must wait and see. Dr. Lancelius's glance at Lyra and her stolid gaze back might remind us of other conversations with adults, such as Lord Boreal. But no further information is forthcoming, as long as she is there to overhear it. Fartacorum's final question, 
instead of trying to pin down the politic Lancelius, is to give him scope to ask about something in their place, something they don't even know enough about yet to wonder about. Now, you've answered all my questions very fairly, sir, and here's just one more. If you were me, what question would you ask of the Consul of the Witches? For the first time, Dr. Lancelius smiled. I would ask where I could obtain the services of an armored bear, he said. Lyra sat up and felt Pantalaimon's heart leap in her hands. Farakorm's etiquette here, taking another cake rather than rushing off to meet the bear as Lyra wants to do, permits Dr. Lancelius to ask the question he is interested in from his own place about the alethiometer. I understand that you are in the possession of an alethiometer, he said to her great surprise, for how could he have known that? Yes, she said, and then prompted by a nip from Pantalaimon added, would you like to look at it? I should like that very much. Pan's closer here to the polite rules of the game. His circumspection in this case is knowing when to share a secret rather than to uh, conceal it. And it leads to important new information once Lyra is open and honest. Images of reading come one after another. He looks at the alethiometer like a rare manuscript. He asks about the books of reading, and Fartakorn refers to the pools of ink the Hindus use. But I haven't been able to find anything about those, but perhaps it comes from memoirs of the British in India that Pullman's mentions that he's reading. Uh, but the most important reading is Lyra's, telling from Dr. Lancelius's demon's agitation that it's no good trying to lie to the consul. That is wise, he remarks. As she has started asking more about demons, Lyra also asks more about the Alethea here. Dr. Lancelius, do you know who made them? They are said to originate in the city of Prague, said the consul. The scholar who invented the first alethiometer was apparently trying to discover a way of measuring the influences of the planets, according to the ideas of astrology. He intended to make a device that would respond to the idea of Mars or Venus, as a compass responds to the idea of North. In that he failed, but the mechanism he invented was clearly responding to something, even if no one knew what it was. And where did they get the symbols from? Oh, this was in the 17th century. Symbols and emblems were everywhere. Buildings and pictures were designed to be read like books. Everything stood for something else. If you had the right dictionary, you could read nature itself. It was hardly surprising to find philosophers using the symbolism of their time to interpret knowledge that came from a mysterious source. But, you know, they haven't been used seriously for two centuries or so. So thick and fast we get Prague, astrology, ideas of planets, the 17th century, everything standing for something else, the book of nature. Behind this glimpse into Pullman's hermetic attic, I suspect is his reading of Francis Yates and other authors. I haven't done that research yet, so I can't comment much on all this. Only, Dr. Lancelius's dismissal there at the end is hardly convincing. 
Then he puts his finger on the same question Father Quorum has been asking and been interested in, asking Lyra, May I ask a question? Without the books of symbols, how do you read it? Her answer this time is again metaphorical. I just make my mind go clear, and then it's sort of like looking down into water. You've got to let your eyes find the right level, because that's the only one that's in focus. Something like that, she said. I don't know how satisfying this is as an answer, but the poetic aptness of the image connects it with a number of other images in this chapter. With the water, Pan has flown over and swum about in, green and white, her blank look into the witch consul's green eyes, and her noticing the agitation of his green demon. More to the point, in yet another instance of the characters in this chapter, not only asking questions, but asking about asking questions, Dr. Lansalius poses a test question for her, and listens to her explanation. We see how Lyra interprets the mechanics of the device, inferring from its movements combinations and levels of meaning, and presumably adding these to her vocabulary for future questions. Again, a number of the symbols used here are also relevant to the events of this chapter, sometimes appearing literally elsewhere, as in the case of the dolphin, or nearly so, as in the case of the helmet, which corresponds to the bear's missing armor. The baby and anchor we've seen before, as well as the crucible, whose message Lyra politely leaves out of her explanation for the consul. It seems quite possible, taking all this into account, that we are invited to read further messages from the alethiometer here, beyond the answer to the question Lyra is ostensibly asking, if only we can frame our own questions appropriately. And questions, too, can have multiple meanings, multiple purposes behind them. Perhaps they always do. When Dr. Lancelius hears Lyra's explanation, he nods. Remarkable, he said. I am very grateful. I shall not forget that. Then he looks strangely at Fardacorum and back at Lyra. Could I ask you for one more demonstration? If you look out of this window, you'll see a shed with forty or more sprays of cloud pine hanging on the wall. One of them has been used by Serafina Pecola. The others have not. Could you tell which is hers? Yeah, said Lyra, always ready to show off. And she took the alethiometer and hurried out. She was eager to see Cloud Pine, because the witches used it for flying, and she'd never seen any before. While Lyra goes after the spray of Cloud Pine among those hanging, Pan bounding at her side as a hare, we might note the number 40 seems like the same number of years since Fartacorum has seen the witch. Uh, we might also note the rapidity, the certainty of her ability at reading the alethiometer, which has developed so miraculously, so quickly. And as she runs about, jumping with the branch, trying to be a witch, we hear a tantalizing reading of her by Dr. Lencelius. Do you realize who this child is? She's the daughter of Lord Asriel, said Fartacorum, and her mother is Mrs. Coulter of the Oblation Board. And apart from that, the old Egyptian had to shake his head. No, I don't know any more. But she's a strange, innocent creature, 
and I wouldn't have her harmed for the world. How she comes to read that instrument, I couldn't guess, but I believe her when she talks of it. Why, Dr. Lancelius? What do you know about her? The witches have talked about this child for centuries past, said the consul, because they live so close to the place where the veil between the worlds is thin they hear immortal whispers from time to time in the voices of those beings who pass between the worlds and they have spoken of a child such as this who has a great destiny that can only be fulfilled elsewhere not in this world but far beyond without this child we shall all die so the witches say but she must fulfill this destiny in ignorance of what she is doing, because only in her ignorance can we be saved. Do you understand that, Fartacorum? No, said Fartacorum. I am unable to say that I do. What it means is that she must be free to make mistakes. We must hope that she does not, but we can't guide her. I am glad to have seen this child before I die. So who this child is, apart from her parents and her innocence and her insights, which inspire such belief, there's a story behind her, indeed a prophecy among the witches, overheard from still more mysterious and still freer beings, immortal whisperers go passing between worlds. Like Father Quorum, we might understand little of this destiny, this destiny beyond the world, or how Lyra might get there, or how she could there, getting there, uh, her, how her getting there could entail salvation, but the language of her needing to be free to make mistakes should remind us of the conversation between the master and the librarian back in Oxford. Before Dr. Lincelius can answer how he could tell it was her, and if indeed he was going to, he's interrupted by Lyra coming back in. Later we'll find out that as she came in, she overheard some of this, though she didn't understand it. At any rate, she doesn't let on here. She's overjoyed at Dr. Lancelius's gift of a twig for her. You're not a witch, she tells her, as Marcosta told her that she ain't Egyptian. But somehow, by some sympathetic magic, or could it be quantum entanglement, he can use this branch to contact the witch queen. And taking their leave, Lyra notices a look on Farquhar's face, a kind of longing, which, hit, which hints that the twig means something very different to him than it does to her. A series of errands later, they'll make for the yard behind Einerson's bar and find there, as perhaps the name suggests, one warrior, almost a ghost of his former self. First, we have the shopping expedition, already mentioned, and uh, with the fatherly father quorum as opposed to uh, Mrs. Coulter, and also a chance to swap notes with John Fa. He's keen to hear their news. He has some of his own to share, and he's met another new character, a prospector from the country of Texas, a balloon aeronaut, who will also prove integral to the story. As John Fa says, they were lucky in coming to Trollesund, despite its uh, inauspicious name, as was Pullman, so much so that later he'll write a prequel story about Lee and Yorick, called Once Upon a Time in the North. Fartacorum points out that they still have no clear idea where they're going to go, but John Fa is irrepressible, as it says, on campaign once more. Again, we might wonder what backstory there is behind their old friendship, and perhaps 
some of those old campaigns will find their way into Pullman's forthcoming Book of Dust, or into other one-off tales, if he has time. With the dusk falling, and the cargo unloaded from the ship, Lyra and Father Coram setting out to meet the bear, we enter that noir mode last seen in The Throwing Nets, or maybe in Jacob's story of breaking into the Ministry of Theology. After darkness had fallen, and when the stores and equipment had all been safely unloaded and stood in waiting on the quay, Farakorm and Lyra walked along the waterfront and looked for Einarsson's bar. They found it easily enough, a crude concrete shed with a red neon sign flashing irregularly over the door and the sound of loud voices through the condensation-frosted windows. A pitted alley beside it led to a sheet metal gate into a rear yard where a lean-to shed stood crazily over a floor of frozen mud. Dim yellow light through the rear window of the bar showed a vast pale form crouching upright and gnawing at a haunch of meat which it held in both hands. Lyra had an impression of blood-stained muzzle and face, small malevolent black eyes, and an immensity of dirty matted yellowish fur. As it gnawed, hideous growling, crunching, sucking noises came from it. And there are some funny parallels with the start of the meeting with Dr. Lancelius, though the differences are alarming. Instead of a polite tea, there's a fierce repast. Instead of witchy green, the bear has malevolent black eyes. And it's impossible to read his expression, not only from the dark but because his is not a human intelligence. What the Egyptians had feared about Fata Koram's story of the witch is in fact true this time. The bear has no demon. Not only in a literal sense, but his armor too, and with it his purposeful activity, war, have been taken from him. The mixture of admiration and pity that Lyra feels imprints on her deeply, and the effect on the reader is complex. If we weren't quite sure what to make of the witch consulate first, we're still more out on a limb with Yorick Birneson. There are some precedents we could point to in Norse myth. Weir bears, like Bodver Bjarki, or Beorn in The Hobbit, for that matter. Or the story of the child who brings a polar bear to a great king, Alvin. And that's a story about luck as well. With respect to its linguistic roots, Yorick Birneson's name seems to mean warlike son of male coat, along with the combination of his towering height and earth-deep voice, the detail of his body's rank smell might remind us of the ship, with its nausea-inducing plunging and the smell of the north once we reach the land. To this, we can further add the smell of the raw spirits he drinks. That versatile word, spirits, here refers to alcohol, but puns on the lack of demon and armor. These spirits led him to his miserable state, and now his dependence on them keeps him in it. Though what caused him to start drinking in the first place, he does not say. Again, at that point there's a lull in the conversation, which allows Yorick to ask a question. What work are you offering? Fighting, in all probability, said Fartacorum. We're moving north until we find a place where they've taken some children captive. 
When we find it, we'll have to fight to get the children free, and then we'll bring them back. And what will you pay? I don't know what to offer you, Yorick Birnison. If gold is desirable to you, we have gold. No good. What do they pay you at the sledge depot? My keep here, in meat, and spirits. As in those Nordic sagas and Germanic myths, Beowulf itself, containing elements of the bear boy motif, and many scenes of warriors feasting at tables in exchange for their hard work at war. In the dialogue here, in between battle scenes, we get this kind of battle of wills and words, a game of chicken, and something short of an insult, a provocation couched in what could either be interpreted as innocent confusion or an implicit boast. At any rate, a test of the bear's patience and how he will choose to respond. Forgive me for asking, Yorick Birnison, said Farquhar, but you could live a free, proud life on the ice, hunting seals and walruses, or you could go to war and win great prizes. What ties you to Trollesund and Einarsson's bar? Lyra felt her skin shiver all over. She would have thought a question like that, which was almost an insult, would enrage the great creature beyond reason. She wondered at Farda Coram's courage in asking it. This comes from Farda Coram, who knows they must somehow convince the bear to come out of his alcoholic funk. And so it's craft mixed with his courage. In his answer, Yorick doesn't explain precisely what he means by the term, but it seems to be close to a translation of intercision. He refers to the he refers his forbearance to his distaste for the child cutters, whom he perceives to be opposed to the Egyptians. In responding politely, he lays out some of the reason for his pitiful condition and sets a clear price for his involvement, getting his armor back. It must be a wrenching admission for him. Still, with his evocation of war as the element of his being, and his wish to tear the town apart. It contains its own implicit boasts. Yorick, unlike Dr. Lancelius, does not express any particular interest in Lyra, but he ends up providing the first example of that destiny the witches have long known about, or the first since Lord Asriel in the retiring room. Without her, he would be dead. But in saving his armor... She'll save his life, too. We'll see more in the next chapter. Uh, for With that challenge or plea from Eric Birnison, this one abruptly ends. I'm hoping to discuss some of this material in more depth with my next guest on the podcast. Not so much about Beowulf or King Rolf Kraki, but more with this destiny of Lyra's. So I thought I'd keep this episode a bit shorter, leave that all aside, but since it's already a day late in recording and releasing it, I suppose there's no harm in indulging in a brief recess outing here before we close. One of the good things about an imaginary video game, as cool as it is to play real ones, is that imaginary gameplay is something you can do anywhere. You don't need to connect to the internet to 
charge or plug in the system or shade the screen from sunshine. No particular platform is required to play. A fun strategy guide, namely the original books themselves, are already available. And there are fun people to talk to about them. Yours truly, my guests, a number of online forums. These are all already deep in conversation, which you're welcome to join. In the imaginary video game for this chapter, we've got Pan flying alongside the boat as a seagull, stormy petrel, swimming and leaping as a dolphin, bounding through the snow as a hare. The bond between him and Lyra will always have been there. The distance beyond which they cannot go from one another will have been the extent of what can be seen on screen, more or less. We'll learn in the next chapter it's a few yards. Hopefully, it won't have occurred to the players to try to move them farther apart than that. Or if they do try, an invisible barrier will silently stop them separating. To pull at the bond joining them will only become an option in that next chapter. In this, if you try to swim with Pan as far and fast as you want, he'll automatically turn around and swim back once you reach the extent of the screen. To allay Lyra's seasickness, he'll fly and swim through rings and around obstacles, like during the beaver race minigames in Zelda, or join with schools and flocks and mimic their movements. Doing well at this will unlock these forms permanently, but not meeting a certain bar will cause Lyra to wallow in her bunk rather than getting to explore the ship and perform other seaman-like minigames like sewing and stowing or to practice reading the alethiometer. The story Father Coram tells of saving the witch will be playable naturally. His appearance there will be quite different, youthful and strong, and the colors in the fens of the past more vibrant, dreamlike, not least by the contrast with the greens and grays of the sea. John Fa evidently does not figure in this period of the story. Their friendship must date from a later history, but perhaps some Easter eggs will allude to him as Egyptian prince on campaign in another part of the Commonwealth. After the fight with the Red Bird and the rescue of the witch, the scenes will proceed more like a collage than a continuous narrative in line with Fartacorm's telling. Same goes for Jerry's story of the old navigator and his discussion of demons settling. Once on land in Trollesund, having Fartacorum in your party will give you the run of the town, though you'll have to visit some locations in the order of the story to proceed. The consul's house, where you'll be tested at the alethiometer, play with cloud pine branches, and overhear some confusing stuff about destiny. Then on to the sledge depot and the outfitter's shop, Back to the ship, talk to John Fa, and then to the yard behind Einerson's bar. In talking to the consul and the bear, you'll be responsible for choosing some of Fartacorum's conversational gambits, as well as Lyra's responses. Paying attention to the demon will help in the case of the consul, but in dealing with Yorick, you'll have to rely on your wits. Besides the nausea induced by the sea, that which hits you from the smells of the bear and the spirits will be up to Pan to manage. So, next time, we'll recover the armor and meet the aeronaut. In the meantime, in our recommended reading for this week, we've got Pullman's Little Red and Blue Books, where plenty of side quests await. Till next time, take care. 
Thanks for listening.